This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. Well, the advent of the digital era has meant that we can get information on most topics at a moment's notice. And that quick response to our queries has made us impatient and less willing to wait. Delayed response was a natural part of life centuries ago, but now it is viewed in many cases as unacceptable. A new book looks at this shift. It's called Delayed Response, The Art of Waiting from the Ancient to the Insane World. The author is Jason Farman, who's an assistant professor in the Department of American Studies at the University of Maryland. He's also director of the Design, Cultures, and Creativity program there. Jason, welcome. Great to have you with us today. Thanks, Dan. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Uh, I find it interesting when, when you look at history, and obviously I think we, uh, we all remember the stories we hear about the Old West and, and obviously going back, you know, the days of the Pony Express, uh, about the delays in delivering mail. But uh, I mean, we're talking about something that was really part of, of how we dealt with, with our culture going back decades upon decades, centuries upon centuries. Yeah, in American culture, the ability to send messages at certain periods of time really shaped the ways that we understood this as a United States, as a coherent nation. Uh, message delivery was a really key part of that, especially after the introduction of something like postage stamps uh, in the 1840s. And then you had the Civil War where soldiers were writing letters at an extraordinary pace, just really unprecedented. And this was a way that people kept in touch with one another as they were spreading across the country and and going out west uh, in order to keep in touch with relatives, messages, and and the infrastructures to deliver those messages were a really fundamental component of American history and our identity as a nation as it as it developed. So, uh, was this a, a, a topic that kind of changed and developed as history went along, and maybe not necessarily something that was really even discussed or noticed uh, quite a bit, but as as our society developed. So did the, you know, the lack of delays or the, the, the dwindling of delays. That was the impression that I had going into the project, especially because I'm a digital media scholar. I study mobile technologies and our cell phones and how we use them on a day-to-day basis. And I was initially really fascinated by our impulse to connect with one another instantly and sort of the promise that that held and how compressed time has seemed uh, to be in our own moment. And I was just curious, was that the same in eras past? What, Like you said, is there something in these eras where the delay were just really not a part of uh, the expectations uh, in a society. And I think what I ended up finding was quite the opposite. There's so many interesting parallels between our moment and these eras past where the delays in responding to people uh, were really paramount for how we connected, how we understood intimacy across these geographic distances that we tried to connect with each other, um, and really the shaping of history as well. There's this really um, interesting moment that I came across um, where King Henry VIII is trying to divorce his wife, uh, and he sa- he has all these people, these very powerful people, write this letter to the Pope to grant him a divorce dispensation. And the Pope just decides to wait on a response. He doesn't respond to King Henry VIII. He's exercising his power, his own authority, by not responding. And it really shaped British history at the moment, because uh, Henry VIII at that moment says, you know what, I'm too powerful to wait for you. Uh, I am going to just go ahead and uh, break from the Catholic Church, uh, and I'm going to install myself as the head of the Church of England. 
So really, it was shaped around that delay, uh, how King Henry VIII interpreted the Pope's delay. And you see this over and over again across history. Delays become really meaningful uh, for issues of power and also our interpersonal relationships and how we exchange knowledge with one another as well. One of the uh, other things that you bring up in the book is the pneumatic tube system, uh, which I, yeah. I, I, I mean, I heard the stories from my dad about, you know, about this system. And, and it's amazing to me because, and you kind of uh, assimilate it this way, that this was kind of an early version of text messaging, being able to, you know, put a message in a tube and get it to somebody in, you know, in, in 20 or 30 seconds. Yeah, starting in uh, the late 1890s, uh, several cities in the United States installed these tubes underground that would shoot up to 20,000 letters in a minute uh, between post office uh, stations. So you could really exchange up, you know, a dozen or more messages. It ran all day long, and people would just drop a note into the mail uh, marked uh, to be delivered through pneumatic tube, and, and they could uh, exchange you know, a dozen messages in a single day. So people felt that this era was heralding in the moment of instant messaging, of being able to connect with each other uh, at a very quick pace. And contextually, you know, you had these pneumatic tubes delivering these messages pushed through um, with compressed air in these brass canisters alongside the dominant message delivery technology of the time, which is a horse and wagon. Uh, so people felt that they were living in the future, that all of a sudden the promise of instant connection was being fulfilled uh, through these tubes. And, and I think our own contemporary moment of trying to connect with each other instantly has the same kind of mysticism. The, the industries that are driving our own technological moment um, yeah. tap into those same kind of promises that they had in uh, the late 1890s all the way through the 1950s uh, when it was decommissioned. I was going to ask you, how, how did a time like the Industrial Revolution really kind of change this process uh, of messaging and delays? Yeah, it was a very interesting moment in time and really shifted our uh, relationship to time. One of the things that I trace throughout the book is how these technologies shape our ability to synchronize with each other. Uh, so if we're able to measure time more accurately and also synchronize time with each other, it really transforms our expectations of how we connect with each other. And especially, I think, the Industrial Revolution was uh, an important moment because it shaped how we understand the relationship between work and time. Uh, yeah. So you have a new level of synchronization because we can measure technology more accurately. And then simultaneously, you have the introduction of time zones. So globally, we are all on the same clock, or at least close, close yeah. enough, closer than we ever have been. And so as a worker walks into the factory line that day, they uh, punch their time card, and they, at the end of the day, they do the same. So we measure and um, you know, have this idea of starting on time, of synchronization in a way that really we hadn't seen uh, before that. And that changes both the expectations interpersonally and radically changes what it means uh, to be a worker and to have a work day. Well, and also when you think about something like the markets and the trading that goes on globally and the fact that, you know, technology has made it available to be somebody you could be trading, you know, 24-7, 365 if you wanted to. Absolutely. So the latency that's introduced in our own era, you can kind of trace that back as well where um, the delays really shape our ability to be in the moment and, and uh, to be able to transform markets and to do these kinds of exchanges. So you have uh, the introduction 
in the United States today and globally of what are called internet peering points, where essentially companies can connect with each other's servers just across a little aisle in this data warehouse, essentially, and it reduces the time lag for data exchange. And that radically um, shifts how markets uh, fluctuate and how quickly markets are expected to respond to certain things. And, and if the delay of data is introduced in any kind of way at a scale that we can't even really comprehend you know, in our physical bodies because it's so minute, uh, it can ultimately really change uh, markets and how things are, are, are traded. Uh, we are joined by uh, Jason Farman, who is the author of the book, Delayed Response. Your comments are welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. Or if you'd like, send us a comment on Twitter, at BizRadio132, or my Twitter account, which is at Dan Loney, L-O-N-E-Y 21. You know, there's no doubt that that maybe one of the more impactful areas where you talk about delays and how they have changed uh, in terms of impact has to be around the military and military conflict and, and how we have gone from the days of the Revolutionary War uh, where, you know, it could take weeks to get a message to the British troops uh, that had come over to the United States or, you know, then America mm-hmm. from the uh, from the homeland to where we are now, where, again, messages going to the military in instantaneous format. Yeah, the interesting story that stood out to me in that uh, was during the Battle of 1812, for example, there was a truce that was signed, a treaty uh, that ended the war, and that took place in Europe, uh, that that um, meeting of, of parties to end the war. And the messages from that um, peace treaty didn't arrive in the United States for weeks. Um, And ultimately what happened was the Battle of New Orleans was fought weeks and weeks after the war had already ended. It had no impact on the war whatsoever. It didn't determine its outcome, but you had these thousands of soldiers dying because of a delayed response, you know, this delayed message that didn't arrive in time. And uh, one of the really profound examples as well in the Civil War is during the Battle of Fredericksburg in Virginia, where you had the armies, the Union Army coming in and ready to make the surprise attack on Fredericksburg, which had maybe a 500 or 1,000 um, Confederate soldiers defending it, and, and the army would come in, sweep through Fredericksburg, go down to Richmond, and end the war. But they couldn't cross the river. The Rappahannock River needed a pontoon bridge to be built, and that pontoon bridge took about a month to arrive because of delayed messages, and it ended up being a disastrous loss for the Union, thousands of soldiers dying because of uh, delayed messages. And so delayed Delays really ultimately shape human history in some profound ways, and especially in military conflicts, how quickly we can get messages to people shapes the kinds of strategies that um, are engaged. And also for the, the everyday soldier in the field, messages are their link to their lives back home. Uh, and so connecting them with those lives uh, is a really fundamental way of, of you know, maintaining some kind of uh, sense, a semblance of, of real life for them uh, as they try to connect back home with family. How do you think delays are perceived in this society today? Uh, you Almost across the board in Western culture, we see delays and waiting as a disruption to our lives. Um, they keep us from uh, using our time productively. We perceive them as wasted time when we could be doing other things. Uh, They produce boredom or loneliness or anxiety. Sometimes we feel powerless 
when it comes to these delays. So almost across the board, delays uh, have a really negative connotation. And the ultimate result of that is we're trying to build technologies that will speed up our lives, make our lives more efficient, um, which you know we tend to embrace in really positive ways. I love doing a Google search and having my every curiosity satiated in a moment, you know. But I think the the question that drives my uh, inquiry in the book is what are the costs of that kind of speed right. Uh, right. and that that desire to eliminate waiting. What what do we lose if we lose waiting? Uh, was kind of the the question I had for this book. But part of that is also the fact when you think about uh, our society today and and, and work, so many people are, are more busy today than they were 20 to 30 years ago uh, with the fact that you do have more people that have to have two jobs to be able to, you know, to make ends meet. It, it is it is such a more challenging time. And then throw in the fact that we all have smartphones and we all seemingly text. And and that is kind of the mode of, of conversation these days that that just is adding layers to the angst of many Americans. Yeah, that's right. Uh, I had a graduate student who was telling me about his partner's uh, new job at a tech company in the Silicon Valley. And uh, the partner's phone would go off with text messages at four in the morning, and the partner would have to get up and answer those questions, sometimes return phone calls in the middle of the night, and was ultimately expected to be available at all times. And with the introduction of email in our lives, with text messaging, with technologies that reach into our lives and our homes and our private uh, lives, we feel really overwhelmed because we are expected to be available at all times. And part of the elimination of waiting in our society is this drive to have us be productive citizens, you know, like the moral imperative of using your time wisely. And I think what we see ultimately is that um, that is producing results that we didn't anticipate, where we are feeling uh, incredibly busy and overburdened, and thus we're less productive. We're actually using our time in worse ways. We are not innovating on knowledge because we are consuming knowledge at a pace that we can't quite do anything with it. We don't know what to do with it. Uh, So I think the results are this very overworked, uh, burdened, busy population that is actually not as productive and not as innovative as it could be if it if it shifted its perception and relationship to time. So then is it safe to say that while technology has been a blessing on many fronts, it's also been a burden in many cases as well? Undoubtedly. I think we all feel that, uh, that we are feeling incredibly burdened uh, just by keeping up. You know, I... I am so bogged down with my email. In my industry of higher education, uh, when when I started college, uh, I wasn't able to just email my professors and and you know either talk about an assignment or complain about a grade or set up appointments. I had to go to office hours. Uh, and in my industry, email has changed everything: uh, our relationship to our students, to other faculty, to the parents of students, um, and even in my own kids' life. I have two kids in elementary school, and I can email their teachers uh, at all times. So uh, we do have these radically different expectations of how we can connect with people uh, in our lives and and the expectation that they are they should be available to us and if they delay in responding we uh, see that as uh, them not using their time very wisely and we judge that uh, and I think across the board we're all feeling very burdened by that but, uh, so 
Yeah. I was going to say, a lot of people also feel that it has taken away something from our society, the fact that we rely on tech so much. And, and while it does give us the opportunity to maybe get in touch with somebody in a little bit of a quicker fashion, mm-hmm. it's taking away something because we're not actually talking to them. And, and that, that communication, yeah. that lack of communication has become a, a, a drain on our culture. That's what actually started the book uh, when I... Uh, started teaching undergraduate students, uh, which was right around the time uh, the first iPhone came out uh, about 12 years ago or so, I was really shocked to, to see how many text messages my students were sending in a single day. They were sending hundreds of text messages in a day. And I, I just asked them, well, why don't you call these people? Why are you texting? What's the advantage of texting? And why did we decide to use a technology that makes us wait uh, instead of a synchronous technology, a real-time technology that gets us talking with people to be able to hear the fluctuations of tone and voice uh, or meet face-to-face and see people's expressions. And the time that's introduced uh, to these message exchanges that these uh, people are doing and that I'm doing now with my own text messages is now filling in some of those gaps of nonverbal communication where delays are interpreted uh, as a as a cue as a, that we're supposed to interpret uh, from other people when we're lacking those nonverbal, other nonverbal cues like gestures or facial expressions. Um, yeah, it, it's a really fascinating shift, I think, and, and one that really got me going into this book to begin with. And, and, it, and we're talking with Jason Farman, who is the author of the book Delayed Response, The Art of Waiting from the Ancient uh, to the Instant World. Uh, Jason is a assistant professor at the University of Maryland. It, it doesn't appear like this is going to get any easier easier, any better, uh, you know, moving forward because of our reliance on the technology and because, as you said, that mindset of quicker is better. I think we see throughout history that people have felt similar things to what we're feeling. I think people have in eras past felt that they were in an accelerated culture because technology is continually speeding up our ability to connect with other people and to connect with ideas um, and and knowledge and and messages. Um, I think, however, we do see a pushback in our own contemporary moment to this uh, culture of speed. You have people who are trying to introduce delays that are productive. Uh, You have people who are uh, developing slow movements, for example, trying to recenter our use of time. Uh, and the slow movements go from uh, the food movement, you know, slow food, uh, higher education, there's a slow education, there's uh, and slow publishing, you know, this idea that maybe the pace of the tenure track is, um, is untenable and, and producing particular kinds of knowledge over others. And then even in religious movements, you have people who are trying to embrace pausing, meditation, uh, slow our lives down in order to to identify what's lost in in a culture that values the instant uh, and and what we can do productively through moments of waiting and delay and pause. Pauses can be really productive if we recenter our attitudes towards them. What about the the influence of of email? And to a degree, I think it's similar to texting. But just what has occurred with email and and how that has impacted our society? Yeah, I, I bring my own biases to this because I'm unfortunately really terrible at email, and I, I, I hope that some of your listeners can identify where we do feel overwhelmed by uh, our email. Um, the, the difference between the email and the text is, I think, a significant one. Even though we have email on our phone, I think the medium of the text allows for a certain form of brevity uh, that uh, we can 
quickly shoot off a text while emails sometimes really require a different relationship to content and, and the amount of content we're expected to uh, produce and similarly how many people are on an email chain and uh, versus maybe the more intimate sphere of the text message and also in our culture in the United States where texting is related to your phone number as opposed to just simply finding that uh, email address. So email I think has very different expectations um, when it comes to time, how much time you're supposed to devote to it yeah. uh, and we really can't keep up I don't think. I think it's a technology that by design is overwhelming and, and very difficult to uh, keep up with uh, in our society now. We're talking with Jason Farman of the University of Maryland and also the author of the book, Delayed Response. Your comments are welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. Or if you'd like, send us a comment on Twitter, at BizRadio132, or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. I, I also, being in this industry, I'd love to get your 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 insight on the role that the media has probably played in this entire process as well. When I look out at the media landscape, the timing of um, media exchanges of knowledge is extraordinary. Where we are expected to be in the moment, you know, you have things from just-in-time news and uh, all the way to you know your everyday person finding out what's happening on um, Twitter uh, versus a major news outlet, for example. And I think you have social media competing with the news industry in terms of how timely it is, how quickly it can. Uh, put knowledge out there or events and, and what's happening with particular kinds of events. And I think what you see is an increasing pace of trying to get news out there, whether it be, um, you know, the, the problems around verification uh, and then also just the need to keep up with the moment. I think over the last two years in this particular moment in this presidency, the the pace of news has become really extraordinary and, and really interesting to watch. Uh, and our inabilities to have these pauses and moments of pause, um, because we have to keep up, the, the news industry needs to keep up with, with the latest things happening. And, and it seems like something is happening at every given moment. Uh, yeah. So to keep up with that um, is, a, is a real challenge. And I think it's transforming what's happened to uh, the the industry as a whole, I think it's it's a radically different place. And, and it also it, it is, and you alluded to this a second ago. It, it doesn't give us a chance to be off. We are, you know, right. we are always on. You know, it feels like it. Right. And it's something that, uh, unfortunately, we are also passing down to our kids as well. Yeah, I think also the yeah the the effective or emotional impact of that is it can't be overstated. The you know being always on um, and feeling that the latest news alert you know getting sent to my phone uh, is really it can transform my day because all of these things are happening around me and sometimes I feel very powerless to do anything about that news. That to me is a really fundamental question. We are presented with this information all day long. What do we do with it? Uh, what are we supposed to do with the the knowledge we get on Google or the news that we get through uh, the radio or in the newspaper or on Twitter? What are we supposed to do with this? And I don't think we're giving ourselves enough time to answer that question. Uh, we don't know what to do with it, so we just keep kind of being pulled into this future feeling like we don't have a sense of agency over how to change things, how to intervene. Um, and so I think the emotional toll of being connected always and not being able to sit with something for a moment and to think about, what do I do with this? How do I innovate on it? How do I transform things? How do I, as a, as a person who's reading this or listening to this, do something? Uh, I just feel like I'm just 
being bombarded nonstop throughout the day. So the pauses, I think, are really essential for us to have a certain sense of emotional well-being and also that we can do, we can actually do something with this knowledge. We can build on it and uh, do some really interesting and innovative things. Jason, it's part of the reason why when I get done this show every day at 12 noon, I go back to my office and I have a 30-minute decompress just to not do anything Fantastic. and not have and not have any connection. Now, I may still be on the internet a little bit, but right. I, I, I kind of block out the world just to, you know, to take right. that breather, which I, I think I think that's that's an underrated element that, you know, we, we talk about the, the loss of the work break at times in the office. To be able to just go outside and, and take 10 minutes and and kind of decompress is, is an important element here. I think if industries embrace that perspective, we would see innovation at a different pace. We perceive those breaks and wait times or just sitting and daydreaming as unproductive. If we instead yeah. embrace them as productive moments, we would see some massive changes in, in particular industries. Uh, when you daydream, for example, uh, it kicks in a part of the cognitive process called the default network, um, which uh, allows us to see things and, and be creative in ways that we couldn't have otherwise, which, for example, if you've ever been in the shower and all of a sudden you have a great idea, it's often because you have sort of this lack of right. um, embodied stimulation around you. You're sort of uh, blocked off from the world and yeah. can do yeah. nothing else except sort of daydream. And some of the best ideas come in those moments. So if we could actually build that into the workday, we would see some really innovative changes in industries, I think. Jason, thanks very much for your time today. Great book. Thank you again for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you, Jason Farman. The book is Delayed Response. It's available in bookstores and online. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.